Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. Network said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Freedom is so easy to take for granted, especially if you've been surrounded by it, immersed in it your whole life. But Tito Ekeburu will never take freedom for granted. Tito grew up in Chile, harassed by an abusive father, feeling the limitations and dangers of life in Latin America. At an early age, he realized that tennis was his ticket to a better future in the United States, and he was consumed with maximizing his skill, with punching that ticket. Tito has found happiness and fulfillment in small-town Mississippi, serving for many years as the chief financial officer of a big poultry company, and then as the vice president of a bank, an example to the many immigrants who have followed in his footsteps. It was the desire to overcome his unhappy childhood that drove his success, aided by a series of interconnected events, including the lifeline he grabbed at a time of Chilean political instability. At just the right time, freedom arrived in the form of a telegram slipped under his door. You were born in Chile in 1944. What is your earliest memory? Oh, my earliest memory is uh, being born in a small town in Chile called Quillota. Uh, I said a small town. For Chile, a small town is not like where we live now in Morton, Mississippi, which has 3,500 people. But there, a small town has like 40,000 people. So just living in, you know, playing tennis and going to school over there. That's what I remember. What were your dreams as a, as a young boy? That's a very good question. Uh, one of the things that we did is go to the movies. And uh, in the movies at that time, uh, before the movie, 
they'll have news that they show in, in the theater. And, uh, and all of the news were from America. And I remember seeing those, those newscasts and uh, they were all about United States. And I would think to myself, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but, you know, I want to get there one day. So I remember, that's what I remember vividly, that having a dream of coming to United States one day. I didn't know how I would do it, but that's, that's, that was my dream. What did America represent to you at that point? At that point, America was the land of opportunity, which I think it still is. So to me, it was like, if you go there, the opportunities will be there for you, you know, to make something out of yourself, have a decent life, and, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, have a family and, and uh, you know, make sure you have a enjoyable life and not to be worried about basic needs. And what sort of life did you and your parents have? That's a good question. My father was a male nurse. He also worked for the police as a male nurse. So he had a good job. I mean, he made decent amount of money, but he was not a very good husband. And he was not a very good father. <laughs> he was not a very good man. Therefore, he didn't give my mother enough money to, I mean, he did, but for basic needs. And uh, he would get home drunk and, you know, all kind of uh, problems would be at home because of that. So my memories of my family was not the best. How does that sort of, you know, you're talking about the most important male influence on your early life. How does that affect you as in, in shaping you? <laughs> Another good question. I didn't want to be like him. That's number one. But I also have read enough that there's gene-related items that, I want to make sure that he have his genes or that if I did, I would not have the same path that he did. But also, I wanted to give my family, you know, the opportunities financially that I didn't have. And I think I did that, but at the same time, I didn't, I mean, because I work hard, Kill myself working sometimes seven days a week for months. I didn't do a very good job as a father and as a husband giving time to my wife and my kids. In other words, I was more, uh, I had all my effort in working in order to make good money and, and I thought that was my role. But looking back, I should have put more time with the family. Was your father a burden that you had to carry? Without a doubt, yes. Uh -huh. Of course. How did you start playing tennis, and when did you realize that you were pretty good? He, uh, I didn't have a choice. He forced me to play. He forced you to play? Oh, yeah. 
How do you have a choice? So in other words, he, he, my mother was a saint and what she did, she um, put all the effort in my school. In other words, she wanted me to be the number one, two or three in the class. So she would go over the schoolwork, make sure that I study for my test. So I always did well in school because of that. But my father would wait for me at the end of the school day and take me to the tennis club to either play against the wall or take a tennis lesson or, or play against somebody. So I didn't have a choice. In other words, I had to practice six days a week. Now, it's a wonder that you didn't, at some point, rebel against that and hate <laughs> tennis. All right. It's, it's kind of confusing. At the time, you wouldn't rebel against my father. He was the typical man that he'll hit you. I mean, he was physical hitting. In other words, you, you, and he was, he was mean. So, no, you, you couldn't you can do that, number one. Number two... After a while, I realized I was pretty good. I was number one in Chile, I'm 13 year old. I liked the feeling of that, but more than anything, I realized that there were kids older than me that had a tennis scholarship in the United States. So that was my way out. So I said to myself, now I'm going to try hard and I'm gonna to try to make it and maybe I get a tennis scholarship. Because he wouldn't give any money for anything. I knew he would not pay for my education in college. You know, uh, public education was free in Chile at the time. But going to college, you know, even so you didn't pay that much, he wouldn't have paid it, in other words. He, he wouldn't do anything, you know. So anyway, that's, that's why I kept on practicing and playing. Do you ever allow yourself now to think... Um this guy was a burden on the one hand, as you said. Um, he was abusive toward you. And yet, he turned you on to something that fundamentally changed your life. You're right, but he didn't do it because of me. He did it for himself. In other words, what he likes was the glory of me winning tournaments. In other words, if I won a tournament, you know, people would come to him and congratulate him. So that's what he liked. If I lost a match, he he hit me. He would hit me. In other words, I, um, it was all about him. Now, when I was a senior in high school, what he did was, I live in that small town, so I didn't have anybody to practice with. So when I was a senior in high school, he decided that I should move to the capital, Santiago because the uh, Chilean Tennis Association started a program with the best junior player in Chile, with uh, teaching pros, with uh, uh, exercise, psychologists, everything for the first time. So I moved with a friend of his in Santiago and I started going to another high school, which was uh, probably the best uh, public high school in Chile. And I met a couple of kids there that ended up at Mississippi State also with tennis scholarship. 
So that turned my tennis around because I was losing ground until then against other kids because I didn't have anybody to practice with. Now he moved to Santiago with my mother later on, so we live in Santiago with him the last year that I was there before I came to United States. And uh, so anyway, this, uh, he did it. I mean, yes, but he didn't do it for me. As a matter of fact, when I came to United States in 1961 representing Chile on a tennis tournament, he told me not to stay here, just to go back and keep playing. And my mother said, the last thing she told me when I got on the plane, she said, don't come back, stay there. So it was clear what he wanted. Now that is a remarkable scene. Your mother loved you so much, she wanted you to escape him. Yeah. Is that right? That's correct. Mm -hmm. yeah. How did that hit you as a young person? <sighs> it made me stronger. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit AmericanAchievers.us and hit the Premium Membership button. Special thanks to Gold Achievers Wayne Atchison, Courtney Caramico, and Ross Stewart. Check out my books, including definitive biographies of Paul Bear Bryant, Joe Montana, and Francis Gary Powers at KeithDunavant.com or your favorite bookseller. My latest, Speed, test pilot Bob Gilliland, and the development of the SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Now back to the program. When your mother said that to you, what's going through your mind? That she knew that my opportunities were in the United States. Therefore, she just wanted to make sure that I didn't listen to my father that I stay here, get a scholarship, and, you know, uh, improve my future. Did you think when you got on that plane that you might never see her again? Not really. Uh, you know, I didn't think, I wasn't thinking that far. I just wanted to be able to, you know, get a scholarship. That's all I thought about it. So, no, I didn't think I would never see her again. And, uh, but... You know, I wanted to make sure that I was able to stay here in the United States with a scholarship because that's the only way I could stay. I didn't have any means to pay for anything. And if you had gone back, what do you think your life would have been like? <laughs> well, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, you know, probably had a decent life, but, I mean, millions of Hispanic live that way and I probably would have had a job and you know maybe at a bank to begin as a teller and maybe make a career there I don't know but I knew that I w it would have been much more difficult so but to be honest with you I didn't I didn't think I, di I, I didn't think that that far and how much of it was a fear of your father? No, it wasn't a fear of my father at that point. 
Okay, so <laughs> I just remembered something. When I first came to United States as a 17-year-old and to play that tennis tournament, I stayed with the American family. Chile stayed in this house. And this lady that I stayed with, I mean, the wife, remind me of something years later. She said, when you first came, you were taking four pills a day for stomach problems. After you had been here in my house for a month, <clears throat> you never had to take those pills again. And I remember that. So what I'm saying is, it affected me in my health, the life that I had in Chile. But at that point when I was here and I received the scholarship, I never thought back. I mean, I wanted to think forward. Of course, I ended up at his house later on in life, and that's another chapter, but it was different then because I had a college career, I was making money and all that, and, but we can talk about that later. You arrive in Miami, a kid from Latin America, land of opportunity. Tell me about Miami and playing in the Orange Bowl tournament, which was a huge deal at that point, and paint that picture for me. It must have been so exciting for you. <laughs> it was. I never forget. There's certain things you never forget. I remember we're about to land in Miami, and uh, I'm looking down. And of course, we must have gone over a neighborhood that was very wealthy families because almost every one of the houses had a pool. And I remember thinking, man, this is nice. Well, people here, they really have a nice life. They all own a pool. Of course, I didn't realize at the time, you know, not everybody has a pool in their house. <laughs> Only wealthy people do. Well, not wealthy, but you know, well-to-do people. So anyway, and the color of the ocean and the houses, I thought I was, you know, in the, I mean, it was what I thought it was. So it was, I mean, a dream come through. Now, I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, I, I was just landing there. And the funny thing about it is, you know, I went to high school. I finished high school. I was a good student. And I came with another kids, but he was a very good tennis player. He played in a, he played the professional tour later on. But he didn't have education. He was like a ball boy that ended up being a great tennis player. And he probably had a fourth uh, I mean, he probably went up to fourth grade because I remember I had to help him write the the postcard because he didn't write, his writing wasn't very good. So anyway, he told me, he had been to the Orange Bowl the year before. He said, Tito, I don't speak any English. So, I, you know, and I said, don't worry about it. I mean, I went, you know, I finished high school, six years of English. Uh, I'll take care of it. <laughs> famous last word when the lady that was waiting for us a young lady with the orange ball and she talked to me I didn't understand a word she said and my friend said what did she say I made up something I said oh she said welcome to Miami to the orange ball I said okay good you understand so we kept on walking and then she said something else 
And he asked me again, what did she say? I made up something else. And then he turned around and said, Tito, I don't know any English, but I know you don't understand what she's telling. <laughs> <laughs> so the rude awakening, my English wasn't, you know. And you had taken six years of English. Yes, yes. But it was grammar, you know what I'm saying. And I guess I didn't understand it. So anyway, I, uh, the driver that was taking us around in Miami, we couldn't understand each other in English, so we understood each other in French. Somehow he knew French, and I knew enough French because I took five years of French, and we understood each other, so that's how we communicated in Miami at that point. So uh, let's talk about how you got there. I mean, you, you got there because you were a really good tennis player, and what were the steps that it took for you to become a really good tennis player back in Chile? You know, interesting thing, I graduated from high school when I was 16. So I could have gone to college that year that I came to the United States. My, my father told me just to practice tennis, not to go to college, because he didn't want to pay for it. So that year, I only played tennis. And that's, that's not, that was not the norm. So I would practice twice a day. I was with the program of the Chilean Tennis Association. And uh, I had, you know, they had all kind of teachers, tennis teachers, psychologists, nutritionists. So I really improved that year and I put it all in it. Now, <laughs> like anything else, especially in Latin America, sometimes you get breaks, not for what you do, but who you know. There was a kid that played, that was the 10 best player. The year before, I'd done very well in the South American tournament. But when they sent two kids to the Orange Bowl that year, they didn't send me. They sent this kid. He was very wealthy, and his father was involved in the Chilean Tennis Association. So to make a long story short, the next year, they realized what they had done. So they say, we're gonna have a tournament. So even so you're number one, we're gonna have a tournament to see if you're gonna go or not. So if you get to the final, you go. Now they didn't do it just for me, but I knew it was for me. I mean, you know, they wanted to have a way out in order not to send me and get the rich kid to come. <laughs> so <laughs> we played the tournament and I get to the semifinal because, you know, to get to the final, those two would come to the United States. So I get, again, this same kid. Now, he had nothing to do with it. He was a nice kid. So anyway, we started, and I beat him all the time, close, but I beat him. So anyway, we started playing, and it was November, and in November, it started getting hot, dry, in Santiago. We started playing in a court, red clay, and it got to be very dry. So the ball will go real fast, and this kid had a big game. In other words, he hit the ball hard. I was more the steady type. So anyway, he was beating me like 4-1 in the first set. That's pretty bad. Then I saw on the next court, they had just finished watering the court. You water the court. And I said, Eduardo was his name. I said, Eduardo, why don't we change to that court? I mean, look, it's perfect. This one is so dry. And you know what he said? Yes. Now, either he didn't know 
I knew what I was talking about. I wanted that court to be softer so the ball wouldn't come so hard, I mean so fast. And he said, yes. Well, I beat him. Like six four seven five, I think it was. And I came to United States. Now, if you ball. had not won that match, you would not have gotten the invitation to the Iron the Orange. Yeah, Bowl, I right? wouldn't have come. I would have I would not have been representing Chile. Now you're right. talking about a moment that, oh, God, that yes. changed your changes yes. your life. Yes. Yes. That was it. Right. No, I mean that was one of it. Yes. That changed my whole life. Now, that's the first time that <clears throat> my father having feelings because I saw him leaving the match in the middle of it. That was very weird. He never would do that. And he told me later that he thought he was going to have a heart attack <laughs> because he knew how important it was. He wanted me to come to the Orange Bowl just to get better, you know. So anyway, yeah, that was something. That was something. Yeah. Uh, you know what, so? From that point to December, we left in the middle of December, we flew to Miami. From the middle of November to December, I don't think I went out the house much at all. I was afraid that something would happen to me. Turn an ankle, car, you know, hit me. Something happened and I wouldn't be able to make it. So I was even afraid to get out of the house because I didn't want to lose that opportunity. I knew it was what. I, 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 I didn't know, but I had an idea that was, that was it. So tell me about the whole Orange Bowl tournament experience and, you know, the, the matches you had and... and uh, what did that feel like? What did it smell like? Oh, my God, it was unbelievable because there was the best two tennis players of the world playing in that tournament of every country. And uh, so the first round, I beat a number one from Canada. And the second round, I beat a number one for Israel. So I got to the third round, and that's pretty big, like I said, because, you know, they're the best in the world. And I played the number one player from Australia, which became later number one in the world. It means Tony Roach was his name. I'm playing on the court number one. And uh, he beat me, but it was not real close, but kind of close. And uh, I was proud the way I played. I gave him a good match. As a matter of fact, I, I didn't remember this, but there was some write-up about the match, in, even in newspaper in, I think it was Colorado. I don't know how it got there, but I mean, they had, I had a good write-up about what I have done. So I, I done well. And then we play as a team. I'm trying to remember who we beat in, oh, we beat Japan in the first round, then we lost to Austria the second round. And again, I had a good matches then that's why I have three offer scholarship. And what were those three colleges? They were uh, Corpus Christi, Texas Tech, and Mississippi State. Didn't know anybody on those uh, colleges from Texas. I knew three kids that play on the Mississippi State tennis team. And who was Tom Sawyer? Tom Sawyer was the coach, the tennis coach of Mississippi State. He ended up, he sent me a letter offering me the scholarship. And uh, I don't know how it got to me because I was living with this family in Miami. I guess sent it to, uh, to the Orange Bowl headquarters. Anyway, the lady, the couple that I stayed with, the wife was 
didn't have kids. So he took, she took a liking to me and she really helped me my whole, from that point forward. She called Sawyer and wanted to make sure that I had the offer of scholarship. And uh, of course he said yes. So at that point he, uh, she, you know, took me to Greyhound or Trailworth, one or the other, and put me in the bus 24 hours. And I got to not Starkville, but Columbus, Mississippi, is where my friends on the tennis team were waiting for me. Did you understand that America was, was in the early stages of the Civil Rights Movement and Mississippi was a battleground in that? No, I did not. But I was told of that before I left for Mississippi. I was told that that was <laughs> the worst state in the country about those issues. And it was not a very nice place. And I shouldn't come over here on a tennis scholarship. Of course, at the time, you know, I knew a little bit about it, but not that much. And at the time, my only goal was to have a tennis scholarship. So nothing was going to stop me. So I said, no, I'm going. So I came. In 1962, James Meredith uh, famously uh, integrated the University of Mississippi, and there was rioting after that. There was a lot of violence. It was an awful scene. And you had uh, an encounter with James Meredith. Tell me about that. Yes, I did. Uh, we play a dual match, I mean a tennis match against the University of Mississippi. And uh, so after we play in Oxford, Mississippi, it's, it's, um, we went to eat uh, dinner at uh, the cafeteria. And it just happened that he was coming through the line at the cafeteria with the um, FBI agent. So I got out of, got off the line and, uh, and uh, I uh, let him go through and um, look at him, look at the FBI agent. Then we came back later to Mississippi State. It was a Saturday, my roommates were gone, going home. I went to bed, probably got to the room about 10 p.m. About two, three in the morning, I hear Doc in the door. I get up and open the door. There were two kids, almost, I mean, you know, 17 years old, about 17, 18, can't tell, they were young, which they told me they had her, I have let, you know, that, you know what, through on the line in front of me, and if I did that again, they would take care of me. So I. You know, I said, I understand. Closed the door, went to sleep, but I thought it was, you know. I still remember, <laughs> I still remember, it, you know, seeing them at the door, you know, talking to them, and, you know, it, it was shocking. How did that make you feel at that point, as a kid who was just trying to get an education and play tennis? Well, I guess I was, I realized that there were the deep hates involved with this situation, so... You know, I guess I felt like this is real, you know what I mean? But I, I guess when you, all right, I guess when you have a goal in life and you want to achieve it so bad, all of that is secondary. It doesn't, doesn't play a role. In other words, you say, hey, that's part of it. I mean, you know, I know what I want. I'm going to get there. So all of that 
kind of, you know, it's happening, but it's not going to stop you from trying to achieve what you want to achieve. Well, you were a part of some really good, uh, really good Tennessee teams at uh, Mississippi State in the in the mid '60s. You went back to Chile after graduation. Why did you do that? <laughs> I didn't have anywhere else to go. As a matter of fact, I graduated. This is this is a neat story. I graduated in May of 1966. I couldn't go home until September of that year because I didn't have the money to pay my trip back. So what happened is I asked Sawyer if he could let me go to summer school because I needed to make some money. So he said, okay, I'll let you go to summer school and then you can stay in the dorm. So I think I took bowling and something else. I already graduated. But what I did was from 1 o'clock to 9 p.m., I would give tennis lessons at Mississippi State. The next morning after I finish summer school, I'll go with somebody to Tupelo, Mississippi, which is about an hour something away from Starkville. And I gave tennis lessons at the public parks over there from about 2 to 10 o'clock. And I stay at the hotel there, downtown Tupelo. And the next morning, this kid would pick me up because he was going to Mississippi State Summer School, <laughs> bring me back. And I'd do the same thing over again. Now, later on, I met a family in Tupelo, which I was able to stay with them, so I didn't have to pay for a hotel. All right, that went on until the end of summer school. But I still didn't have enough money to pay for my trip back. So I said, coach, let me stay another few weeks. I need to, you know, I need a job. So I was hired to grade entrance paper. But what it is, is, you know, you mark an X, you know, and if, so you, you have a kind of a tool that you put there. And if it was correct, you know, I mean, you didn't have to know even the question or the answer. So I worked there for about a week. So I made more money. Well, I still didn't have enough money to go back home. So there was an engineer in charge of all the engineering and maintenance of Mississippi State. And I made good friends with them. Sometimes I sleep at their house. They live right there in campus. So he said, Tito, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to pay for your, all your trophies to go home and this and that so you don't have to pay for that. And then the lady in Miami said, you know, how much you need you know, to go home? I said, you know, I need 200 maybe. I don't remember. He said, I'll loan you that money. And I said, well, I don't know when I'm going to pay you. I said, don't worry. I know you will pay me. So I'll loan you that money. So with that, I was able to pay, buy my trip back. So I got to Chile. I went to live with my father and mother but at the time remember I've been gone for five years almost five years and I have gone only once for six weeks I had a trip back I had the airplane ticket back that the tennis Chilean Tennis Association paid for me you know round trip when I came to the Orange Bowl so I had that so I used that one to come back my sophomore year for six weeks example in order to get out of Chile at the time you had to pay taxes I didn't know that and my father said, tough luck, you don't go back. I'm not going to give you any money. 
So I sold my tennis racket. You sold your tennis racket? Of course. This is like the gift of the Magi. Uh-huh. So that's the way that I could get back. So <laughs> when I got there, you know, I've been going for another two and a half years. I got there on Friday. The same night he said, my father said, don't think you're going to have a break. You got to go back to work. You got to go work on Monday because you got to pay me for staying here. Luckily enough, I had an interview with one of the accounting firms, Price Waterhouse. When I got there, they didn't have my documents. I don't know what happened. But in the same building, there was another firm called Arthur Anderson, which is a very well-known company. So I said, well, let me go talk to them. And they didn't know me. So I walk in, and I w wanted to talk to the manager in charge. His name was Bill Lindbergh. I'll never forget that. So I show him my, you know, all my papers, college degree and all that, what I have studied. And he said, yeah. He said, when, and I said, I like to work for Arthur Anderson. He said, yes. And I said, where can I start? And he said, right now. So I got the job right there. I couldn't believe my luck. So I started working for Arthur Anderson, famous accounting firm. Now, Here's the interesting part. Five of us were hard that year. He told all five of us, you're hard, but a year from now, only two of you are going to stay. There's three of, three of you are going to have to go because we don't have a place for the five of you. So you all decide. I mean, not now, but I mean, you know, depending on what work, what job you do. I said to myself, I'm going to be one of them, then I'm going to stay. So I'll work 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day, Saturday, Sunday. I'll take my girlfriend with me in order to help us to put envelope together. We need to send it sometime. And if I, you know, when you work in auditing, they give you a number of hours to finish the work. Like this day, eight hours. But I'll work 14. And of course, I didn't have to, I didn't have to show the other extra hours. So I did my jobs in the hours they gave me. So guess what? I was one of the two that stay. I mean, you know. And here come the interesting uh, part. Um, so what happened is Arthur Anderson will send a few of their employees to in-depth accounting and auditing classes. So they sent me to Cali, Colombia for six weeks one time. I will pay for classes from eight in the morning to six at night at the hotel. We were about 25 of us. Then they sent me to Mexico City for three weeks for in very intense internal audits. So what happened in the second year, I was a senior then, you go up and I move pretty fast. My second year, they sent me to Mexico for seven days. I knew I was going there about a month, a month before I was going. So I wrote a letter to a boy from Scotland that was on the team. And I said, John, John Edmund was his name. I said, John, I wrote, I'll be visiting you all sometime in let's say, second week of June. 
I'll be in Mexico City, I'm gonna fly, I have vacation, I'm gonna fly to Starkville and visit you. That's it, and I sent that letter months before. So anyway, I take the plane in Mexico City, going to New Orleans, get off the plane, I start walking. Guess who was there waiting for me? John Edman. Now you gotta know John, he was simple-minded. So I said, John, what are you doing here? I said, well, you sent me a letter saying that you could come. I didn't tell you the date. I didn't tell you the airline. I didn't tell you the time. How could you be here? This is New Orleans. You're in Mississippi State. I said, well, I was here, but waiting for a plane to go to Jackson. And I heard that Mexican airline plane was arriving from Mexico City. And I said to myself, that's where Tito's coming. Sure enough. So I said, okay, John, you're here, but you're going to Jackson, I'm going to Starville. He said, no, 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 come with me. I said, I have friends. We'll visit those friends, the old tennis player. We'll have a great time. Then we'll go to Mississippi State. I said, okay, change my trip, change my ticket. Came to Jackson. Well, guess what? Nobody was waiting for us. He didn't have any friends. He didn't have any money. So I ended up <laughs> paying for the night in a motel downtown, sand and sand. It's, oh, now it disappeared. But what happened is, the next morning, he'd be calling all his friends. And because of that, the president of River Hills, the club where I belong now, called me. I said, Tito, I have an opening as a tennis pro. And as, uh, his name was Slew Hester. He's the one that, that built Flushing Meadow in New York for the US Open. He was the guy that made it happen. He said, I need a tennis pro here. And I said, Slew, I don't play tennis. I hardly play tennis now, maybe once a month. I'm working. I gotta make it in the business world. What about 100,000 a year? And that was 1969. $100,000 uh -huh. a year as a local club pro? I didn't turn out that way, but that's what he said. <laughs> so I said, I'm listening. Was Rod Laver making a hundred? <laughs> I'm making a hundred grand in '69. I was naive enough to not to believe him. So a week later, I met with the board, River Hills, and they hired me. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. I went back to Chile. Of course, you know, I was still working. And uh, for Arthur Anderson, and I said, Bill, I'm leaving. I'm going to be a tennis pro. I said, you're making a mistake. He said, well, maybe I am. But let me give it a try. I wanted to come here, and uh, I wanted, you know, I wanted to live this life again. But the 100,000, you know, made a lot of difference. So anyway, I came. I hated it. Oh, I told Bill, I said, well, I'll tell you, Bill, if you think I'm making a mistake, why don't you give me leave of absence? For two years. That's the contract. He said, I'd be glad to give it to you. So if I want to decide to come back, I can come back anytime. Yes. So I came. I was here two years. I hated it. I didn't like to be a tennis pro. It was terrible. Who was John Rogers and how did you meet him? Okay, John Rogers was a member of River Hills. I didn't know anything about him, but he wanted to take a lesson from 12 to 1, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Friday. Oh, sure. I'd be glad to. So I gave him lessons. We became kind of good friends. And then as a matter of fact, I said, I tell you, John was a good player, but not that good. You know what I mean? And, and, and I said, I tell you what, John, you've been very nice to me. 
and my wife, I tell you what, why don't we play doubles together in tournaments? And he says, oh man, you really mean that? I said, yeah, oh yeah, because he was crazy about tennis. So we played quite a few tournaments together and we did well, of course. I was a tennis pro, I was in the court seven, eight hours a day, so I was playing well. So, you know, I carry most of it, but he did good enough to help. So we won tournaments and everything. So when I left, you know, that was it. Nice meeting you, you know, it was great meeting you, blah, blah, blah. So I went back to Chile and uh, I went back to Arthur Anderson. Now, <laughs> I started working for them right away, again. At the time, Allende just got, just got elected. And I saw Bill Lipner on an interview on NBC the night before I left for Chile. But it was his back, not his front, but I recognized. So I called Bill from Miami. And I said, Bill, I saw you in an interview on NBC over here. Are you leaving? Is Arthur Anderson leaving Chile? He said, no, no, no. No, we're going to stay here, no matter what happens. I said, all right. So I went back. Three months later, Bill said to all the staff, we live in Chile. So you decide what to do. Now, at the time, they offered me a job with Arthur Anderson in Phoenix, Arizona. My wife didn't want to come back right away. She didn't like Jackson. She didn't like the life she had there. And I didn't, you know, now I don't blame her. So what she did, she saw advertisement in the paper about an internal auditor for Firestone. So she sent all the information without me knowing for the job. So all of a sudden I get a call from Firestone telling me that they're ready to talk to me. And I said, you got the wrong person. I haven't applied for the job. I said, yes, you, you have. Here we have this. And then I said, aha, my wife did it. Now let's back up here for a second. Okay. Because tell me how you met your wife. You were both kids. Yeah, we I... were in the same neighborhood. I mean, we live uh, a block and a half from each other. And um, she was a younger woman. Oh, yeah, she was 12. <laughs> <laughs> and you were what, 16? 16, yeah. But you know, got to remember... In Latin America, especially at that time, I don't know how it is now, you were very respectful. You didn't, I mean, it was, it was not, you know, I mean, nothing, no kisses or anything. So we just like each other. And um, we met at the church, at the Catholic church run by fathers from, from Portland, Oregon. And they show movies, but also they play ping pong. They had ping pong tables. And she was very good at ping pong. I was pretty good at ping pong. So we both different tables. And then I said, oh, come and play with me. You know, I like her. So that's how we met each other. So, but we just like each other. That, that's what it was. I mean, then I left, you know, for the United States for the Orange Bowl. And then later on, I came back. And, of course, uh, you know, we started dating and all that. You know, she, we were older. So anyway, Firestone, I got the interview and I got the job. So I stay with Firestone instead of coming to Phoenix. I worked for them two years and I was on a business trip to the northern part of Chile where the factory was. My office was in Santiago. 
Ahora I get a telegram. Remember at the time telegram, they put it under the door in, in Santiago. It was John Rogers. His father just passed away and he was in charge of all the businesses they had. And he wanted me to be the chief financial officer for his companies. When I was working for <sighs> Firestone, it was Firestone and some investors from Chile. When Allende took over, they nationalized Firestone. So I was the in-between between the Chilean government and Firestone because I spoke English, of course, and I was in the financial end. So my great pay that was here one time, now when that happened, it went here. So it was good for me, money-wise. I was making a lot more money. But the political situation got to be terrible, terrible, because that's about a few months before the military took over. When I would go to the plant in the northern part of Chile, there was all kind of riots, pro or against the government. When I was in Santiago, we'll get faxes saying, don't let the employees, because the Chilean government was, was in charge, don't let the employees go out to, you know, uh, demonstrate against the government. And you are responsible for them to stay in there at work. It was terrible. But the worst thing about it is that since I studied in the United States, they put my name there, the union, at the plant in the northern part of Chile, that I was one of the right-wing uh, Yankee supporter. They say I was a, I was working for the CIA. That's what they say. <laughs> they accused you of working yeah, for, the CIA. for the CIA. As a matter of fact, I told them, you know, I thought they were joking. And I said, well, if I am, I must be making good money. <laughs> it wasn't funny to them. So at that point, I said to myself, this is nuts. I came here to work, and I'm involved in political things that I had nothing to do with. So when he told, when John Rogers sent me that telegram, and I say, yes, I'm leaving. And this was a lifeline for you that, yeah, you can't put too no. fine a spin on this. No, it was a lifeline at the point, at that time. As a matter of fact, we couldn't even couldn't even buy a ticket to get out of the country at the time. So one of the stockholders from Chile had a uh, travel agency. So he made it appear like I brought, I bought round trip ticket. They wouldn't let the professional leave, but I wasn't. I was only buying one way, but that had appeared so I, I could fly it out. All right, so I, I came. Here come the other point. About three months later, four months later, when Pinochet took over, all, not all, most of the managers that work at the plant, which were either socialists or communists, the military took over the plant, made them, made them call their wife, and they shot them the next morning, the military. You know, they were <laughs> the socialist communists, you know, working for, 
Allende at the time, the government. So that what, that's how bad it was. So anyway, and here I am in Morton, Mississippi. So that's how I got here. Is it true that you were the first Hispanic family in Morton? Yes, we were the first Hispanic family in Morton. Now, did you feel like a fish out of water? No. Why is that? Well, very simple. <laughs> All right. When you play sport in Mississippi, remember, there's no professional teams here. Still not. So what do they follow? College sport. And since we were good in tennis, my name, I mean, I don't mean by everybody, but people recognize my name. Even today, my wife will go to a doctor and say, oh, this last name, there was a tennis player that played in, <laughs> in the 60s. I say, yeah, that's my husband. They still, they still remember. College sport here is pretty big. So they, that's one thing that I had going for me. And the other one, that John Roger was the richest man, one of the richest men in the state. They had all kinds of companies. So when you're friend with the richest guy in, <laughs> in the county, it helps a lot. Now, remember when I left Chile, I couldn't take anything with me? So all my furniture stayed there in Chile. I couldn't bring it. So what he did, the only time he ever done it, he had a party at his house, which he never had, for all, not all, all the management, which is about, this was a huge company, 150 people at least, they were invited, but they had to bring me a present. <laughs> I think that's called a baby shower. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can call it that. So the point is, when you're friends with the richest man in the county, and you have played sport and done pretty well. No, I didn't you know, fish out of water, no, no. And you ended up uh, recruiting Hispanics to come work for his company. Yes, and that was an interesting thing. The company at the time, which is still here, we sold it you know, to a company in Chicago, Cook Poultry. We had about 4,500 employees. That's a lot of employees. And we have always had problem retaining people. It's hard work. Not paid that well. So he said, always a turnover. He came one morning. His office was at the end of the hall. Mine was in the middle of the hall. He came through the hall one morning on Monday morning, and he said, Tito, I just saw a program on educational TV about the unemployment of Hispanic in Miami. I think you need to go there and see what you can do in order to bring some of the Spanish here. Now, he had a friend, which I knew him too from Cuba, that had a company in Miami. So he said, I'm going to give him a call so you can set an office there and see what you can do. I said, sure. So I flew there. And what, we, what I did was I put an ad in the Miami Herald about opportunity to work in Morton, Mississippi in the poultry company. And uh, we started the first week out of the office of that, of that, his friend's office. We brought like 45 on Greyhound first week. So I said, yeah, this is going to work. So we rented an office. We had videos, literature. So we started. So we brought every week 40 something Hispanic from Miami. 
Now, it works. It solved some of the problem, but long term did not did not work because these people, most panic from Miami are Cubans. They live in you know big cities in Cuba or Miami, and they're coming over here. And remember, there was other time you couldn't have a drink, you couldn't have a beer can with you in the street. It was dry, so it was a different world. So. They came 45, they left 20. They came 45, they left 30. So it did not work at the end. Yeah, but we started bringing from Texas after that. But then we had a human resource department, so I was not involved. So I started the program, but you know, it was a good experience, but at the end, I don't think it worked like we, we thought it would. How long did it take for you to feel like an American? I always have felt like an American because of the opportunity this country gave me. Now, if that means, okay, that's an interesting part. I feel like, and I tell everybody this, I feel like I live in a world, three different worlds, and I always felt this way. Okay, I live in the world of River Hills, which is the most expensive tennis club in the state. I mean, it's beautiful. So, you know, most of my friends that play there, they're all, Republicans, they know I'm Democrat. We get along great. We have a great time. And, uh, you know, I have that world. I live here with the good old boys in Morton. As a matter of fact, when they play the high school football, I go to, they have, not picnic, but they have, you know, dinner before the game, a group that I belong to. Tailgating. Tailgating, white, good old boys. Got a great time, great food. Belonged to Lions Club, belonged to all kind of Chamber of Commerce, you name it. I'm there. So I have a great time with them. And Hispanics. I was I have been able to help them here, especially working at the bank for twenty years with their, you know, opening deposit, obtaining loans, you know, just helping with anything they need. So that's you know, and I enjoy that. So I feel like I'm helping to all three groups. And of course they're helping me, but I mean, I feel like I'm making a difference. So the only problem is that when they started coming, all the Hispanics, they said, we thought they were all your relatives. <laughs> I said, no, they're not my relatives. <laughs> they're not even from the same country. <laughs> so, you know, they had a very narrow view of Hispanics, you know, people here. So. But anyway, you know, it's, it's been good. I mean, I have no complaint. What does the American dream mean to you? The opportunity, no matter who you are, where you come from, what your last name, what your social status. If you pay the price, you can make it. Whatever you want to make it means. Whatever you want to make it means. You, you, you own your own destiny. It's a matter of how hard you want to accomplish that and uh, you can be as successful as you want to be. I mean, you got to be honest, work hard, study, you know, be responsible, you know. You but if you're that in Chile, you still might not make it because there's a lot of problems in Chile about social status. In other words, where you come from, what's your last name? So here it's not that. I mean, it's amazing to me, 
you know, of course, I'm sure this is true in what I'm talking about in the eastern part of the United States or where the Kennedy come from. I'm talking about, you know, not royalty, but, you know, names and all that, last name. But here, you know, here, if you have my last name is funny, but if I do a good job, you know, they're going to pay me well and, you know, they're going to give me the opportunity, which is not that way in most Latin American countries. What have been the building blocks of your success? My wife. <laughs> she has taken Smart man, <laughs> mentioning her first. She had taken care of the family, taken care of the kids. Not only that, she had a business right beside us for well, 30 years. The daycare. She had a daycare. And uh, I only kept up with the, you know, the accounts receivable, you know, but she done it all the rest. She had 45 kids for many years, you know, seven or eight teachers. Oh, I took care of the payroll, too. But anyway, that's, she took care of the family, yeah. So I couldn't have done it without her help, you know, that. But what else? What are the other building blocks of your success? Oh, be responsible. Be responsible. I mean, just be at work. <laughs> this is not, this doesn't reflect very well on me. But I wanted so bad to to be uh, successful in business that I would work seven days a week. I think I worked seven days a week for about four months one time. And I could not understand why other employees wouldn't be willing to work seven days a week like I did. I mean, people what did you have me. that they didn't have? Drive, the drive. And where does that come from? From my background that I wanted, you know, when you are living that kind of life, you always have that. You never lose it. In other words, you always think, what if something happens? I gotta keep trying hard, hard. In other words, that's the bad part of it. You never you never you never get rid of it. You know. You always think, you know, I gotta keep on trying. Even I finish working two days <laughs> I finish <laughs> retire and my last day was Friday. And the person that took my place, he's already, he was already there for about four weeks before I left. And I, he had worked for me before, but we know each other very well. And that Friday was the last day of the month of July. That's time for financial statement. You know, you got to close that day. So some of the ladies that work in accounting, they didn't give me the report. They gave the report to him. And I said, why are you doing this? He said, because you're retired. Yeah, but I'm not retired until tomorrow, Saturday. I'm still here. So I'm going to finish this job. So you bring it to me. I did. So at 6 o'clock on Friday, I finished the financial statement. And that was it. So what I'm saying is, up to the last minute, I said, this is my job. I'm going to be responsible for this. I could have said, Gordy, he's saying, Gordy, take it. You know, I'm leaving. No, you know, so, yeah, that's it. I mean, you got to be responsible. And that's, I don't understand why people don't think that way. I mean, you know, that's, that, that's the difference. Tennis, I was not, I was, I was short. I'm still short, I'm more than ever. I didn't have great, beautiful, I mean, not beautiful. I didn't have powerful shots. No, because of my height and, uh, 
So what I did was, if you're going to play against me, you're going to pay the price. We're going to have breakfast, lunch, and supper together. It's going to last four hours. I might beat you 6162, but you're going to pay the price. You're going to be dead. But sure enough, I won a lot of matches because they didn't want to pay the price. They didn't want to be there all that long. I kept the ball in play. I defended. I ran. I did everything. Of course, I was pretty good. Don't get me wrong. But I didn't have a, a game where I kill you with shots. You know what I mean? Go to the net, hit the overhead. I had a good overhead. But what I'm saying is that was not my game. You know, there is a saying, you serve and rush to the net. You know, that means trying to get a volley. You know what they said about me? You serve and you rush to the fence back. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be playing for a long time. That's it. So you dealt with a lot of people when you were in the banking business. Um, you saw a lot of different kind of people across the spectrum. What bothered you about when you saw someone who wasn't motivated to, to work hard or someone who, who didn't understand the opportunities available? How do you relate to that? I don't, but I understand it. I don't know the answer. I, but I mean, that's everywhere, so not only here, but I'm talking about all over the world, that people think that somebody else has made their luck. No, they didn't. You made your own luck. I mean, of course, there are exceptions, no. But I'm saying is, okay, this is the perfect example. Was when I was a freshman in college, I would come and stay with that family in Miami, maybe a month during the summer, and there was a tennis club right close to her, I mean to that family. So I'll go and play there. And there was a guy, of course I was what, 19, 20? He was like maybe 40, good tennis player. So we'll play against each other. And then I'll ask him, and I'll say, what do you do? And I said, I'm a, an accountant. And tell me about that. Remember, my father was a male nurse. I'd never been around accounting. I didn't know the first thing about it. So I said, tell me about it. He said, well, this is what you do. You have a job anywhere in the world with accounting. You know, banks, hospital, government, uh, accounting firms. Then I said, you make good money on it? Oh, yeah. Then I said, that's what I want to do. So I'm going to put all my marbles there. I'm going to be an accountant. That's all I knew. So the point is, if you have a goal and, you know, you try hard enough, you'll make it. Another example, first accounting class. I'll never forget this. First page, it had number one, first chapter. It had a paragraph about this, a, you know, just a simple paragraph. And I started reading it. Of course, a lot of words I didn't know. So I go to the dictionary, and then I say, okay, this is what it means, blah, blah, blah. It took me about 15 minutes to translate that paragraph on the first page. And I said to myself, oh, it's going to take me a long time to get through with college because I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to have to translate everything. Well, what I didn't realize that at that point, I made a, I made a promise to myself. I said, I'm going to be around American kids. I'm not going to be with the Latin people because they all speak Spanish only. I never learned it. Oh, it takes me a long time. And even now, some of my friends from Chile told me, why didn't you be around us so much when you were there? Because I wanted to learn English. 
So, um, I was very fortunate too that the first semester I was at Mississippi State, I didn't even go to school because they didn't have the scholarship for me. So they made me, the coach said, go back to Chile and come back in August. I said, coach, I don't have a penny to my name. I gotta stay here. I said, okay, I get your room at the dorm. And sure enough, got me a room. And guess who my roommate was? A boy, a boy, a, a older guy that was studying a master in engineering. And he was very nice. So we'll turn off the light and he'll teach me English in the dark. Then I watch TV and then, you know, perfect example. I work at the cafeteria. I hardly knew any English. And then I work in the salad department. So I'll get there 10, 15 minutes before and I'll memorize, you know, tomatoes, lettuce, onions, whatever. And this is a long line of kids coming about 12 o'clock for lunch. And this kid come in front of me and he say mayonnaise. And I say, what? Mayonnaise. And I, I never heard of that. So I gave him this. And I said, no, mayonnaise. I gave him that. Finally, I gave up. I told one of the American kids, mayonnaise. He was uh, over here. so. <laughs> but I never forgot. That was mayonnaise. <laughs> I bet you hate mayonnaise now, don't you? <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> What's the best thing about being an American for you? Oh, the opportunities. I mean, you know, and people judge you based on not where you come from. Most people. I mean, I know there is racist attitude. Don't get me wrong. I understand that. But I'm saying, especially people in professional areas, they, 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 they're going to... I have found out that if you're capable, you know, you're going to be just like everybody else. I mean, that is, they don't treat you better or worse. I mean, it's not that, oh, you don't belong here because your last name is Hispanic or something. No, I mean, they, you got the opportunity here. That's the best thing, the opportunity on, on, in, in America. I mean, there's so many cases of people like me that came over here and, and, and you know, they done pretty well. What's the best piece of advice that anyone's ever given you? Ooh. You won't believe this. My father. He gave me one advice I'll never forget. When I was hired by John Rogers, he told me before I left, he said, don't forget, he was your friend. No, he's your friend but you're gonna be his employee now. So things are gonna be a little bit different. And he was right. I mean, I never crossed that line with him. In other words, you know, uh, we were friends. We played tennis together. We argued together. I mean, we argued many times in tennis, playing together. But at work, he never, I never crossed the line, he never crossed the line. In other words, we're respectful of each other. So that, that, that was a good advice. Your father, have you ever made peace with what? Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, my wife had something to do with that, a lot to do. Because he, uh, she made me see that one day he was going to pass away, and I'll have that. Because I wouldn't, oh, well, <laughs> forgot to tell you, this is going to be bad. My mother got sick, 
and he called me and he said and that's where everything ended for a long time and he said she's gonna die and I don't have the money to send it to the hospital so you send me the money to send it to the hospital and he not only had the money but he belonged to the police department so they had their own hospital free of charge but anyway I said okay so I sent in the money sure enough she got better stayed there at the hospital for I don't know how many weeks and then went home then called me again about three weeks later I said well she's still sick and I said daddy I mean it's better now. I know but she's gonna die he said so I tell you what send me the money for the funeral and I say what she's still alive she's doing fine not fine but you know still sick no no send me the money for the funeral and I said that's it that's it I'm not going to talk to you anymore you believe that I mean he wouldn't even die or thing but he wanted the money so I said that's it so I quit talking to him for years but then a nephew of mine the son of my sister came and lived with us for about eight months just to learn English and he would call him but of course I wouldn't talk to him but then he got sick my sister called me and then my wife said you need to talk to him he's going to pass away before long just talk to him I said okay so I did you know we had a kind of nice conversation but still he had that you know rough attitude but yeah yeah I guess I don't know where in the world why he was the way he was well I'm going to say something that my wife is going to kill me for it <laughs> she, she said my father told me that his father was married five times and he was a, a, a manager of train station in other words, different towns have station, so he'll move around. But according to my father, four of them didn't know how they die. In other words, <laughs> based on what he told me, his father might have killed him. So, if you think <laughs> my father was much better than than him I guess so so I don't know you see I'll never know I'll never know the truth about that and how do you deal with that do you just put that in a no, box and no for many long many years I thought to myself I hope I don't get any of those genes I hope and I had a bad I had a believe it or not not believe it or not you don't know me but I uh I um, I didn't have, uh, I mean, it was hard for me to um, it was hard for me to think that I didn't have some of his genes. I was worried about that. I said, maybe I have bad genes like my father and his father. So that worries me for a long time. But then as I get older, I get better. I had a I mean, I, I would lose my cool pretty easily at one time, like my father did with me. I, I never hit my kids or anything like that, but I wasn't, 
I wasn't very loving father. And uh, so I was worried about that. I said, God, I hope I don't get that. But I was always aware of that. So, you know, it's, uh, but I get better. I mean, my grandchildren, they can do anything with me. <laughs> so, but I was pretty strict with my kids. Luckily for me, all three turned out great, professionally and as a person. So, I guess, you know, not everything has run its course, but so far, so good. Thanks to Lane McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever. <laughs>